Welcome to Literary Friction on NTS. I'm Carrie Plitt, here as always with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi Octavia. Hi Carrie. How are you doing today? I'm good, babe. How about you? I'm really hungover. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally great. Yeah. You're doing brilliantly. Octavia's being really nice to me. She bought me a coffee, but yeah, I've just been at the book fair for three days and it's been, yeah. Full on. It's been really full on. So, but here I am. You're ready. Ready to record. I love you hungover so, but I don't care. <laughs> Whatever the situation, you could still be wasted and I'd be thrilled. Well, I am not wasted. I can assure you of that. <laughs> I, do, I don't think. Who knows at this point? Oh my God, this is going to be so good. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do have a really good show today. We are talking about memoirs, the tales from authors that give us insight into lived experience from hiking the Pacific Crest Trail to the death of a spouse to what it's like to be in a world famous band and all the richness and thorny issues that this form promises. We've got an amazing memoirist as a guest today for our first segment. Octavia, do you want to introduce her? With the greatest pleasure because I have been a massive fan of this woman ever since I was a young punk myself. Um, our guest today is Viv Albertine. And she is the the biz. Um, she's best known for being the guitarist of the massively influential all-female punk band, The Slits, um, and a key player in the British punk scene in general. Her first memoir, Clothes, 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 Music, 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 Boys, 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 was published in 2015. And I remember recommending it on the show because I loved it. Um, and she came in to talk to us about its follow-up to Throw Away Unopened, which is just published this month. It's about many things, but mostly framed around her complicated relationship with her really quite extraordinary mother and growing up as a working class kid in London. And I have to say, Carrie, you rocking up a little bit hungover is like highly appropriate. <laughs> it is highly appropriate, <laughs> although, as you can probably guess, I was not very punk in my youth. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Viv, Viv's a dream. And and luckily, we recorded the interview before today. <laughs> we did. We recorded the interview when, when your voice just was being open. like an octave higher. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a, me- a show about memoir. It's a show about emotional yeah. honesty. Yeah, we're going to go on a journey here. Yeah, we are. But, um, so, so we'll be talking to Viv, of course, on the show today. We're also going to talk about memoirs more generally and giving our usual book recommendations. So stay tuned for the next hour of Literary Friction. I couldn't even think of a pun. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I love you so much. (laughs) Here's Viv. Viv Albertine, thank you so much for coming on Literary Friction today. So we've asked you to start with a reading. Would you mind setting it up, please? Yeah, um, I've chosen uh, just a very short chapter, which is um, the last man I ever attempted to date, and it's probably the last nail in the coffin, basically. (laughs) (laughs) I've totally given up on romance and you may sort of start to understand why when I read this chapter which is called The Third Button Man. Eric and I went on quite a few dates but as he avoided intimate encounters I still hadn't undone all the buttons on his shirt or seen his penis after knowing him for six months. At last the day came when I was allowed to undo the third button on his shirt. We were lying in my bed. He had the shirt, two buttons undone, underwear, trousers and socks on and I was in my bra and pants. I slid my hand over his chest and fiddled about trying to undo the third button, wondering if he'd forgotten our pact that he wasn't going to allow me to do this. He was as still and timorous as a virgin. I thought to myself, surely he's not virgin, not at 53. Maybe he's gay. That would be awful if I'm forcing myself on him. No, more likely he's a psychopath. I've read that psychopaths pretend to be sexually innocent with the women they're seeing and do the bad stuff in secret. Eric let me undo the third button and ran his fingers down my arm, applying just the right amount of pressure. I liked that he didn't do very much. None of his actions were irritating or intimidating. He was also a good kisser. 
Something happened to his lips. He made them go all soft and pillowy until they fitted mine perfectly and the kisses lasted for ages. We got lost in them. I touched his shaved head and looked into his pale Putinesca eyes. Then he rolled over, grabbed the woman in white, the book he was reading from my bedside table, opened it up and started reading. Poor luckless Eric. <laughs> I don't feel bad for him. No, I don't feel bad for him either. Well, I have really treated him well in this book. I can't <laughs> tell you how much worse he was than I, what I've written. Oh my good lord. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think, thank you for reading that. And I think it gives a really good taste of this book, which is that turns really raw, really funny, really honest. It made me laugh a lot. It also, you know, shocked me a, a fair amount. Um, just in, I think, your honesty. So, um I guess maybe could you start by just by talking about that? Do you when you're writing, do you feel that you're being very honest? Do you do you struggle with that at all? Um, I do feel I'm being very honest. And in a way, when I'm writing, because I take so long, you know, two to three years to write a book, I get lost in the writing and I'm just at my kitchen table every day, you know, doing my three hours or whatever. And I've no thought about publication or people reading it. All I know is I'm making a piece of work, and just as the same as I might make a painting or a song, and it just has to be the best it has to be. And honesty is part of what I do. I'm looking for the truth all the time. I mean, I realise in this book, try as I might and search as I might, I've probably come nowhere near the truth. Um, you know, I say towards the end of the book that truth is splintered because there's so many different points of view in the book and they all absolutely, all the people in the book absolutely believe their point of view was right and truthful, um, including me. But we can't all be absolutely right. Um, so the honesty is only starts to sort of hit me in the face once I've handed the book over to Faber and then my heart starts to sink and I think oh my god you know I've written such honesty about maybe my hairy body or my sexual encounters or my horrible internal thoughts all of it but I, to me it's the same as you know good comedy really you only laugh when something's said that you think that you never dare say out loud in a way and I think you know I, I'm probably just as much influenced by something like Fraser or Curb Your Enthusiasm as I am by you know, contemporary writers or past writers or musicians or whatever. I, I, I like that kind of comedy. And I, I think, actually, why should it just be relegated to sitcoms? It's something that resonates with people more than anything, is telling the truth. And I think I got more courage from my first book because I, was, I had a nervous breakdown when I handed that one in at the thought of the sort of uh, response I might get to it. But the fact that it was embraced gave me the courage to maybe even go a little bit further in this one was it a cathartic oh excuse me <clears throat> was it a cathartic experience writing it um I, I don't think cathartic would be the right word i i think i came to an understanding of the people in the book and possibly myself and why i've ended up sort of what how i am you know sort of rage filled <laughs> middle-aged <laughs> murderous thinking woman but um yeah so yeah, cathartic, no, because also I, I find that, you know, as you write about it and then go on to talk about it, it actually keeps bringing all the traumas or upsets to the front of my mind. And I'm now dreaming about the people in the book and bad things that I've done and they've done. And so it's all made it very present, actually. And I should be quite pleased to let it go in a way. But I have to talk about it for a year, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so let's talk about the, the content and the structure of the book. Um, and you mentioned your first book, 
uh, close, 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 music, 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 boys, 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 which I'm sure you got a little bit tired of saying <laughs> after a while, but it's a brilliant title. Um, and I, I wanted to talk about the relationship between these two books. Did Was there a story that you thought you were continuing to tell in this book? And was there a new story that you wanted to tell in well, this book? It's funny, the sort of book made itself known in, to me sort of what it wanted to be because I didn't set out to write this book I set out to write fiction about a middle-aged woman who had murderous thoughts <laughs> and possibly went on to murder and as I and I was sort of um cutting between that and a kind of so, psychogeographical walking around Hackney and as I wrote I found the sort of realness of Hackney and my thoughts when I'm walking around Hackney overtook the, the fiction part of this murderous woman and I started to realise I am that murderous woman and I might as well ditch her and stop pretend, pretending that she's a fictional character and be honest and write that I have these thoughts and feelings towards you know other people or even strangers sometimes and just get on with it so I you know so that took about about probably six months to get to that six months of writing and then as I wrote I started to think well what where does this rage come from and why at this age am I still rage filled you know because people expect you to have mellowed as you've got older and I so haven't and um and so it sort of became a bit of a detective strand in the book is like why am I like this and also why did I pick up a guitar you know when I was 21 in 1976 when only probably four girls in the whole of Britain did and I was working class couldn't play couldn't sing never had a musical you know never learned to play an instrument and I thought that was so odd that I did it out of four women four girls you know maybe even one of the first in fact and yet I so wasn't the type and as I, I just, you know, followed those threads, what made the rage, what made that bravery, what made me so anti-establishment, what made me this person? And as I delved and delved, you know, I sort of found my mother and my grandmother and obviously the environment and the patriarchy and the times they were brought, brought, brought up in and the war, you know, it all came through the generations to make me the sort of rebel that I was and the rage-filled person that I am. <laughs> The women characters that come through, you know, your mother, your grandmother, at one point you say, you know, that it was your mother who you had obviously a complicated relationship with, um, but she make, you make this really compelling point that she taught you to fight back. And you say in the book, I can't block patriarchy out. I was trained by my mother to notice it, to seek it out and to fight it. Um, and that comes through and I, that's the thing that I identified with the most strongly really in the text that in a fury that I've held yeah. since and listeners will know um you know I, I feel very close to that um and it, do you feel glad that she gave you that spirit is it something that you cherish um I do um it's got me into so much trouble and it's sort of probably given me quite a lot of sort of feeling lonely or at least outside of the mainstream um in you know in many ways socially work-wise and everything but in the end I I didn't have a lot going for me and I think she took this little lump of clay that was me, uh, which was not particularly bright, not particularly talented. You know, we were poor, et cetera, et cetera. And she battered me into shape, into a sort of, yeah, a questioning sort of radical, believing nothing I'm told, uh, fight to the end, take risks. I mean, for a girl born in the 50s, she was going, go for this, do, do that, go for that. You know, I mean, she never told me what to do. She'd never heard of anything I tried to do, be in a band, even be a filmmaker, any of it. And I would change my mind and fail and fail. I mean, I failed for years. And every change of mind, every failure, she never once judged it, which, of course, I didn't 
I didn't notice at the time, but looking back, I thought, my God, most parents would be, well, I think that's enough now, dear, you know, go, go and get a degree or, or go and, you know, go, go and get a proper job now. But she never said that. She, it was always, ooh, that sounds interesting. And yeah, the, the openness of that from a woman born in 1919, you know, um, she made me, and I said in the book, it took two people for me to be the person I am. And I'm not ashamed to say that because I don't think a girl born in 1954 could have possibly done what I've done, gone against patriarchy, gone against the system, gone against the times, if I hadn't had me and my mother making me one person. And, you know, I said I in the end, shit, I married my mother, I think, because, you know, most men have got a woman behind them pushing them. I had my mother, you know, she, she was that, p played that part that, a wife plays almost constantly supporting, constantly picking me up when I fell down, you know, right into my 50s. I mean, she sounds like such a radical force. I love the, the detail where you say that she um, wanted to call both of her daughters kerosene and paraffin. I just thought that was the <laughs> raddest thing for, in 1954. What a powerhouse. I mean, she was a punk, basically, she wasn't was she? She was a punk, but she couldn't express it. And, and I sort of used that Glor Gloria Steinem quote, I lived my mother's unlived life. And I think a lot of girls from that time did. I think, um, you know, any of us who had a slightly resentful or frustrated mother. A lot of this book is also about your relationship with your daughter. And in some ways, you know, you, you make a, a parallel between the way your mother raised you and the way you're now a, a single mother raising a daughter as well. Um, and, and you again make the point that for the first time your daughter is allowed to at least make those choices about how she wants to live in society. But I wonder how you see your role in shaping those choices that she'll make now that there's less of a sort of barrier between her and society. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't feel I've had such an effect on her that my mother had on me because, like you say, it, it kind of isn't necessary. You know, society is much more open. There's much more communication. Britain isn't this tiny little closed country anymore due to the internet. You know, we're much more international. Um, she can think to herself, oh, I wouldn't mind being an architect. She can even think those thoughts. I mean, I, I never thought in a million years, I'm not even sure I knew what an architect was when I was a teenager, but to think that I could have been one, I, I wouldn't have even had that thought, like I didn't, wouldn't have had the thought I could be a guitarist. She can think those thoughts, whether she actually pursues them or, you know, gets anywhere, but to actually be allowed by society as a young girl to think those thoughts is so different to the way I was. Yeah, one of the reasons I, I and I think we wanted to ask you that is because we think a lot about contemporary feminism and, you know, the patriarchy and how far there still is to go. And I, I wonder how, how you feel about the kinds of pushes that need to be made in society and, and, and what still needs to be done. Um, I think it is so, it's the word pernicious. It's it's so there all the time in every way. And um, I'm not sure my daughter's quite realised yet because I think up to a certain age, boys and girls are kind of equalish. But bit by bit, you see the boys start to stride ahead as they have the more confidence and they have more doors open, even now. I'm talking kind of probably white middle class a bit. Um, so... I think there's loads to be done. And and I, I remember, you know, after the slips thinking, all right, that's it now. We've opened the door. You know, let's see all these girls steam in. And there was just like a deafening silence. And 
you know, gradually one or two, you know, I think Riot Girl was probably the next thing to happen, which was a good, I don't know, almost 10 years later. And, um, and I didn't think the music was that radical. It sounded like blokes music, but at least, you know, they were doing their thing. But yeah, I, I, I was amazed that feminism and, you know, music and everything just didn't take off. And now I realise that things happen in cycles and they go forwards a bit and then they go back a bit. But I haven't got no, no rosy tinted spectacles at all about we're going to steam ahead femi with feminism and it's all going to be great in 20, 50 years time. I think it's going to be a struggle forever now. Well, one of the things that you really touch on in the book is that really complicated tension between having a feminist sensibility and all that fury and, and ability and anger and frustration, but also needing and wanting to be accepted by the mainstream, which is such a basic human need. And that whole thing about even, you know, you say even when you were in the slits, there was a part of you that was still trying to be conventionally attractive. Mm. And I think every woman who reads your book will understand that and relate to it because it is so hard to actually fully cut yourself off from all that stuff because it's still the currency that women have to it is. trade in. Yeah, I mean, in my first book, I said it's uh, it's a quote from somewhere, I can't remember where, um, it's hard to fight an enemy who's got outposts in your head. And basically, you know, there you're you born into a society, you're conditioned, it's all around you, it's coming through, you know, the internet, the TV, the pictures, friends, you know, ads, everything. Uh, you, you know, how can you keep fighting that? It's like, you know, it's like you're drowning trying to fight against that. And it's isolating as well. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, I, I'm because I'm sort of quite observant, quite aware, incredibly sensitive. I, I'm constantly caught between wanting to, you know, conform and not believing in it and going against it. And I, so I, my whole life has been that constant push-pull tension, even now, you know. Yeah, it's, I, it's knackering. Yeah, it's knackering. <laughs> I feel it too. Yeah. <laughs> I also, I just wanted to bring up the other point that you made, which I which I loved, um, about the hypocrisy of love songs. And I really love the connection you made between the space that love songs in music of all genres open up this space of longing, especially mm. for young women, right? And then the connection you make between that and it basically being this ripening of this hole for capitalism to then fill. Because it's so true, this axis of you know the feminine and, and young women and then desire and culture, but it being all about acquisition yeah. and consumerism. I mean, you know, that was such a revelation and such a huge disappointment to me because having been brought up without religion um you know you, you do look to things i think as a human to hold on to you know and, and romantic love was sort of dangled in front of me from very young as you know the most wonderful thing to aspire to and to find this happy ever after and etc cetera, etc cetera. and you know and all the all the songs i soaked them up you know and and these sort of elegant sort of fey looking boys singing them and pouring their hearts out and I had no idea that I was just being sold a line I mean first of all sold a line by patriarchy which keeps you down as a girl I think to be hankering after romantic love for years and years and years I mean you're not going to get on with stuff whilst you're doing that I mean I've found now I've sort of given up that I've been so creative it's been unbelievable I mean, I've just steamed ahead. It's like I'm unstoppable without that. Um, but that was one thing. And then the other thing was, go, my God, it's just capitalism. Go out, you know, they're singing like that and trying to appeal to a very primal part of you to sell records, to sell T-shirts, you know, to sell music magazines, to sell, basically. And I know it sounds so obvious and it's probably incredibly obvious to men because when I went round asking men about it, 
none of them had ever believed those words. Not the guys who sang it and not the guys who listened to it. I mean, they w- th- those songs weren't aimed at them. It was aimed at a female buying young public. One of the things that really came through for me here was the, the loneliness of being an outsider. Um, and I think you really come across as an outsider, but also the the creative potential of of that. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your relationship to to feeling left out and outside. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people who would know me would not even see that, actually. They'd probably think, oh, Viv, you know, she's successful and she's happy and chatty, you know, when I go out. But um, it's all a bit of an act, really. And, um, you know, I think lots of women can do that, mask um, their feelings and look like they fit in. I mean, that's why female autism is so undiagnosed, they've realised, but because we can observe and copy so well. But, um, yeah, it's lonely. It's lonely in so many ways. It's lonely to think you think differently to most people. You only need to watch X Factor to realise you think differently when the one you want gets voted out in the first week. But, you know, it's, it's, it pervades all through all types, all parts of your life. You know, trying can't find a partner who can accept that you're full of life. I mean, I still have young friends say that to me, young female friends, you know, as soon as they start to make something as themselves, uh, you know, partners seem to disappear. Um, male, all that. But, um, <laughs> but <laughs> um, it's it's just, yeah, what else? The loneliness. I mean, I, I'm not going to shrink from saying the word lonely anymore. My God, who cares? You know, as I, I was saying in the book, I grew up, single women were around me everywhere because it was after the war. And there were widows and single women. There weren't men around. There weren't enough men around. So and, and there was no sense that they were lonely. My God, they were battle axes. They were strong. They were funny. They were all sorts of things. Never thought they were lonely, though if anything, relieved, I think. Because, you know, what had been expected them for century of them for centuries had suddenly been taken away. They didn't have to get married. They didn't have to do that. And it was okay within society after the war to be a single woman. It was acceptable. Probably one of the only times, you know. It's you know, again we've gone back to, you know, at my age, sorry, sixty three, I get asked all the time, Have you got a boyfriend? And I think, my God, I wonder if my mother was ever asked that at sixty three. And yet you are just not allowed to mature in this in Western society. You're not allowed to just be an older person and not live a teenage life. Have you seen any bands recently? I don't know. It's just, it's almost funny, but it's not really to be keep asking, you know, it's almost, have you got a boyfriend? It's almost, are you still lacking that? You know, and... Even the interviewers have said it, and I said, no, I've given up on it. And, and they said, but what do you do if you haven't got a partner? I oh, said, for fuck's sake. I write books. <laughs> I've got friends. I live a life. I'm doing up a house. I mean, you know, if, why should I have to justify? I, I'm doing so much more without that. Anyway, I just think it's incredibly backward, and I sh- actually think within about 30 years, the whole thing about having you know, a partner and always asking each other if they've got partners and sort of judging yourself and others by whether they've got this appendage or not, is going to, I think it's going to really disappear, actually. I hope so. I think it's such an insane way to open a conversation with somebody. It's also pretty boring. It's boring. And it's all, it's capitalism again. These fools who ask you this, if you've got a boyfriend, they don't know that they've actually just been indoctrinated. Yeah. Because it's not particularly natural state for humans to be in. It's just been coerced by capitalism and, you know, governments to help keep us in line. 
preach, sister. I'm like with <laughs> nodding my head like yeah. a t- <laughs> Um, I, I also wanted to talk about anger um, because I think that's a real element of this book and a really powerful one too is that it's not afraid, it's not afraid to be angry mm-hmm. and you make the point that that there's still a sort of taboo around female rage um, and I found that incredibly sort of like purifying when I was reading it I think just to have you be angry about things and you know I think it manifests in different ways you it's partially about your relationship with your family actually um, and how much anger that that provoked in you but also just anger about society and and the ways that women are are kept down Um, do you think of yourself as an angry person absolutely yeah yeah absolutely but what's so great is I've begun to hear in the last couple of years women talking about female rage and female anger anger and I think oh thank god I've been raging all my life and to start hearing it said about you know by other people is 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 wonderful and that's what I sort of hope to achieve with the book in a way to just talk about things that don't get admitted very often that aren't you know to be angry to not smile as a, as a woman growing up me um was was considered I don't know unfeminine and there was nothing worse than being called unfeminine in the 60s and 70s, I can tell you, which is what we went against with the punk and everything, you know. And the fact that we went around sneering and not smiling, we were attacked for it, literally attacked in the street for not smiling. It's like, if you're not going to act like a woman and wear a dress and smile, then we have we are at liberty to attack you. I get the sense here that you're also trying to break down a bit the form of the memoir. Um, it's a very... It's a very fragmented piece, and I and I don't mean that as a um, slight. I, I really liked the fragmentation, especially this way that you uh, interdisperse the the story of the day that your mother died with sort of more general observations about the world and stories and stories about your family in particular. So wh- how did that form come to you, and, and what were you trying to do with it? Um, I should also mention mm. there's photos in the yeah. book which, which give it a a real sort of engagement with truth um, in, in an interesting way. Yeah, on the photos, I deliberately didn't use any photos of people because I don't know if you've got the sort of thread in the book that, that I feel I possibly am somewhere somewhere on the spectrum, autistic spectrum. I, d- I don't know if I might be, you know, how it works. And it's, you know, the more I've read about it, it's not even sort of a, a spectrum. It's not even the shape of a, an arc even. It's... It's sort of all over the place, but I, I feel slightly in that, and I know my family are very much in that more than me. And um, and I find things, whether it's bricks and mortar or objects or whatever, very comforting um, more than more than people because they are reliable. They exist and they stay existing. I mean, there's unless you break them, they're there, kind of thing. And so all my all the pictures through the book, they're sort of like little anchor points for me. They're they're you know, they're things, they're things that I know either talismans or things that I find interesting or a house I like or, and um, yeah, so that that's quite an important thread to me throughout the book. It's it's not sort of random. They're, they're just moments to almost touch base and think, and think, oh, you know, I can calm down. There's a picture of a thing. <laughs> so that's that. Um, the, the fragmented structure, which is, is only sort of two st- threads in the book. One, one is, you know, move... Well, the main one is almost the night my mother died um, and the sort of um, the rage my sister and I felt towards each other that night. And the rest of the book to me is exploring how that and detecting how that night and why that night felt like it did. 
and why my sister and I felt such rage towards each other on the death of my mother. And um, so I had to very be I had to be very careful that when I got to that night and the rage that my sister and I felt towards each other, that the reader had come to some understanding about how we got to that. If I'd put that too early, I wouldn't have been able to keep the reader with me, their empathy. So the structure, I wrote the book a couple of years, the structure took another year to get right, just simply, you know, like a Rubik's Cube, getting the structure right so that the reader, I knew the reader would be with me up to a certain extent. Because, yeah, none of us are particularly pleasant in the book, but it doesn't matter if you understand why someone's not pleasant. It's very different just writing unpleasant characters to, you know, to ex explaining, well, do you know what? If you were born then into that family with these genes, you would be that person too. That's, that's what I learned from it in a way. And you also include diaries from both of your parents in there, which, you know, the, 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 the stage of the book where those reveals kind of come, it's, it's, they're super powerful. And, you know, really as the reader, you get such a strong sense that, there is no one story and there is no one perspective. Um, but did you have any hesitation including them in the book or did was it very clear to you that that's what you wanted to do? No, I had absolutely no hesitation. One is because my they'd been left and I felt they would have been destroyed. And I think if you leave them, then they are the property of the person you left them with. <laughs> Plus they're dead anyway so <laughs> <laughs> there is a saying isn't there you can't libel the dead but no I, I didn't feel at all because also I I just have this feeling that if unless people tell the truth about family and death and sibling relationships we're going to go on pretending you know everyone's going to go on pretending they're in a nice you know nice family and the people who aren't are going to feel lonely and like weirdos because their family doesn't work and I, I just like to be done with all that and when my mother was dying, I so could have done with having read some honest accounts of deathbed scenes, which I couldn't recall one as I was standing there and needed help. And um, since I've written this book, and it hasn't even you know, been out long, I've had so many people say to me, oh, this happened on my parents' deathbed. My father did this, my brother did this, my sister did that. And it's already opened up a small dialogue. Um, so, yeah, I just can't think the truth. God, it, we just need it. We need it. It's so helpful for, you know, like the Me Too movement, I think what's so helpful about that is young women who find themselves in those sort of positions now have some narrative, some history, some other people's stories to draw on to help them deal with those situations. And I needed that at my mother's death, and I, I didn't have it. Yeah, and, and speaking of the truth, just as one last um, comment, to kind of come back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, um, another way that this book <laughs> is really truthful is about things like body hair and <laughs> and how you actually feel about sex and for me it was amazing to read that to just say to just have a woman lay out not only how she feels about her body hair but you know what it's like <laughs> just you just don't read that in books and yeah, it was, you just don't it was read fantastic it. I mean there's a couple of other people um Aisha Mirza who writes brilliantly about hair she writes for Galdem magazine um and um Hanam Kur who you know, is very out about um, having a beard, basically, you know, because of her hormones, et cetera, et cetera, and so out and proud about that. And I, I think she's so brave and wonderful. Um, yeah, and I don't think, I mean, for me, I am terrorised by what people expect 
women to be like hair-wise and what I'm actually like hair-wise. I mean, you, you could say my whole dilemma with society could be summed up in that. I have nightmares most nights about hair. It's in the wrong place. It's growing. I'm, you know, in the wrong way. It's growing too fast. I'm embarrassed. I'm caught out because, I mean, it, it and I, it absolutely terrorizes me. It's, it's in my head all the time. I mean, you both look l- less hairy than I am. <laughs> but I don't know, babe. <laughs> because I'm blessed I'm, with light hair. I've, I'm a yeah. thick black hair kind of girl. Oh, oh, good, good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, I'm half Corsican. And I say in the book, I didn't even used to like saying I was Corsican because of the word coarse in it. And I immediately thought they'll know my hair is coarse, you know. But um, yeah, so yeah, hair has terrorized me, but it's, it's the expectations of women and hair has terrorized me and to the point where I'm actually mad. I think so many women are going to identify with it when they read the book that I did and it was liberating for that reason. I mean, it's just we keep coming back to the fact that the truth will set you free. The truth of any dysfunction, whether it's physical, Mm. emotional, societal, you know, break down the barriers. Yeah. Well, on that note, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Viv Albertina, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on Literary Friction. Thank you so much for coming in. And and we both would really recommend that readers pick up (laughs) and read To Throw Away Unopened, um, which is out the day we're recording this with it which the 5th of 5th april. of april yeah do in it all good bookstores thank you pimples on my face and grease in my hair and prickly legs go ahead and stare and ass full of stretch marks and little boobs and ice full belly that's filled with food sometimes i'm pretty and sometimes i'm not so let's take a listen in me with your This is Larry Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt back here with Octavia Bright to discuss our theme today, which is memoir. A form we both know and love, I think. Yeah, desperately. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> uh, let's talk about what a memoir is. Um, and and I, as listeners know, I work in the book industry, and we definitely understand memoir as um, a sort of subcategory of an autobiography, um, which relate to real events that happen in someone's life, but um, form a sort of narrator, <laughs> but from a narrower focus. So a sort of, so I've heard somebody say something that an autobiography tells the story of a life while a memoir tells the story from a life. Yeah. I mean, I love it because it's basically the good stuff without the boring stuff mm. <laughs> of biography. And biography and autobiography is, is a very specific art that is, you know, um, a research project as well as an impression of somebody. Whereas what I love about a memoir is it can be way more free-reigning and roaming and impressionistic. And I think where we fall into difficulties with it as a genre, I mean, you know how I feel about genres. I fucking hate genres mm-hmm. and I hate boundaries and I'm not down with it. But um, I do understand the need for broad strokes to be you know, drawn in order for people to figure out what they want to read and what they might be interested in spending time with, right? So yeah. Also, we wouldn't have a, like, a lot of our show themes <laughs> if genres didn't exist. So I'm glad they do, <laughs> That's just for that reason. That's absolutely right. <laughs> you know if only for us to pull them apart oh, in our discussion. so memoirs have obviously been around for a long time um caesar wrote a war memoir um walden by henry david thoreau is a memoir uh there's books like 12 years a slave um you know george orwell was a was a famous memoir down and out in paris and london yeah one of my favorite books yeah um 
But I think you could argue that the genre has really emerged in its current form in the last 30 years or so with books like, you know, Angela's Ashes by Frank McCourt, which I remember being on the New York Times bestseller list for like the entirety of my childhood. <laughs> just like every week you'd be like, oh, OK. Still there. Um, <laughs> just Kids by Patti Smith, which we are both big fans of. Uh, books like Ages for Hawk, The Argonauts, you know, and dare I say it, <laughs> heartbreaking work of Staggering Genius by our favorite Dave Eggers. I'm weeping. Yeah. Maybe we should have a show where we read that. I mean, I feel like maybe we should. Yeah. I also feel like maybe we should interview Dave Eggers. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think he would want to come on our show. But anyway, <laughs> um, and uh, these are all books that were bestsellers and have very, very literary aspirations. They sort of sit next to literary fiction on the shelf. And I think that's really exciting. Um, and one of the reasons I wanted to do this show was just talk about this explosion of memoirs that are doing interesting things, including Viv's. Yeah, totally. Well, uh, I think it's an interesting... I think it's a really interesting form when it's allowed to be literary in a way that autobiography and biography often isn't allowed to be literary. So, you know, it can create this structure where a writer is able to be um, brave and innovative in the way that they're using language and structure as well as the story that they're telling. I think the thing that often is like the, the gnarly kernel of issue at the heart of it god that was a bad sentence but you know what i'm trying to say yeah is truth it is the question sentence. of truth <laughs> yeah. um in a memoir because people become very obsessed about them being true even though they are also permitted to be literary and that's where you get this kind of complicated tension a lot of the time yeah i think that's a really good point about truth and actually there have been quite a few controversies um maybe most famously james spray a million little pieces which uh you know was on oprah's book club and it was this memoir of recovery and addiction and um, it turned out a lot of it wasn't true. And I, and I think created a really interesting debate about like, okay, so what what is the power of truth? What is the power of somebody saying this happened to me? And what boundaries are blurred and what is lost when we find out that these things aren't true? And I think a lot of people would argue that A Million Little Pieces is still a good book. Mm. Um, but they're also really offended by the fact that he's lied. And I understand that, especially now, you know, when I can't take the idea of truth for granted not to be so sweeping and broad about it um it's true though Ben. yeah it's but totally you, true. what's your sense of what makes a good memoir i think um i think the truth issue i'm less worried about because i read for stories um i think the thing is people read memoir because they want to feel close to the writer in a way that fiction allows you to feel close to the author but there's always the there's like the fourth wall essentially is in place which is created by the imagination and the fictionalization of the story. Um, so I think what a lot of people are seeking in memoir is like proximity, emotional proximity and understanding and empathy and intimacy. Um, so I think a sense of intimacy is really important for mm -hmm. a memoir to be successful. Um, but I also think, uh, I think it has to be um, in interesting. Yeah. <laughs> is that a really straightforward thing to say? But, and I think, Actually, the question of whether a memoir is interesting or not has nothing to do with whether a person has been interesting with a capital I or whether a person has has lived a externally interesting life. It's more are they finding something interesting about their experience and whether that interest is because something is very funny like David Sedaris is a wonderful memoirist because he's so funny. He's so funny about things that are essentially often quite boring um, or quite painful, but his interest is in his ability to find humor in things. Or, you know, um, Maggie Nelson, who I'm gonna talk about a bit later, so I don't wanna dwell on, but you know, her interest is, I find her intellectual way into emotion really interesting and stimulating and, and valuable. Um, 
I think that there is a lot of memoir out there that I'm just not interested in reading um, because to me it doesn't seem interesting and it, I don't mean that as a judgment on the writer or a judgment on the project it's just not a book that's appealing to me um, so I find I'm drawn towards memoirs that are about people who are marginal in some way at the moment like which is what drives a lot of my reading actually right now and that doesn't mean to say I don't think there are brilliant memoirs written by straight white guys I'm sure there are but I, I I'm not drawn to them because I I have understood enough about that experience mm. <laughs> growing up in the world that we've grown up in. And the thing I think that's really, I think that is really exciting about memoir at the moment is because there's this drive towards a diversification of voices and points of view. There is a really exciting motion happening that is embracing other perspectives. But the big but here, I think, is that one of the things that we risk with this like explosion of any kind of genre is that then um quality can also drop off the edge a little bit and i think a bad memoir is a terrible terrible piece of writing yeah. and a bad memoir for me is when someone hasn't understood that it's not therapy which is i think um katie roif who's a writer and Rofie, a yeah, in, in um that piece in the in slate that we both read yeah and she's a controversial figure yeah. man that chick but she made this really good point that like a memoir writing memoir is not the same as having a therapy session and the skill lies in knowing the difference between writing with skill about something that's important to explore and just vomiting out your feelings about your own life. Yeah, totally. Um, and I think storytelling is key. And storytelling and, and reflection um, and craft. Yeah. Which which she makes the point in that piece that Joan Didion like sort of relentlessly edit her pieces. And when you read them, it doesn't read like they were edited. But when you see the process that went into that kind of effortless writing you you realize how practiced her craft is and her skill is at, yeah. at telling these stories um so here's a question if you were forced at gunpoint to write a memoir about your life what would you write i mean there are so many things there are so many things um i'd probably write about my experience of addiction recovery to mm. be honest like uh, you know either that or my complicated relationship with my mother <laughs> <laughs> well, those are very classic yet um, explorable themes. Yeah, rich, fertile territory. Yeah. Or maybe the fact that my grandmother raised an, a peacock from an egg called Oberon and it hated men and tried to blind my dad. That might be where <laughs> I'd start. <laughs> what about you, darling? I don't know. I wrote this question and didn't think about it myself, which is not useful. But I m maybe something about being an athlete. Yeah, girl. Just about, well, I, d I don't think there's enough about like women doing sports not that I'm saying I should write it but I just would love to read a really great memoir like memoir about a woman and I and if listeners have a suggestion please write to me uh, that thinks really deeply about what it's like to be a competitive athlete because I used to I used to run track in college and it's really stamped made a huge impression on my life the only thing close to that I think is swimming studies by Leanne Shapton which is which is a oh, fantastic memoir it. actually that I oh. that I would recommend and she she was a um I think she was close to making the Olympic team for Canada in swimming. So it's uh, a memoir about all of the, all of the things she had to do, um, like get up really early, 6 a.m., go to the pool, go swimming, but also these beautiful sketches of all the pools she's swam in. Oh, um, wow. And she's, I think she's fantastic. That's really interesting, actually. I feel like, and again, this is a genre I'm very ignorant about because I, I have not read ma male sports memoirs, <laughs> but I feel like that's probably a huge number of them. 
Yeah. Because the narrative of the male sportsman and the like triumphing over adversity through physical excellence and all that is quite a well-trodden path, no? It is a well-trodden path, but they're often autobiographies, quote unquote, right. who are often, you know, they're ghost written. They're right. not, um, they're not doing what a lot of the memoirs that we like and are talking about in the show are doing, which mm. is really trying to explore the form, use wonderful language, use wonderful writing, like oh, so interrogating their experiences. No, I don't know. I'm not a writer. <laughs> <laughs> I like facilitating others writing. Um, <laughs> Why don't you facilitate my maybe memoir I'm about like, my peacock? Maybe my hangover is, is making me a little bit more negative about the whole thing. Um, well, I feel like we have a lot more to talk about, but we are already running short of time as usual. So let's um, let's recommend memoirs that we really love. Okay, I'm going to jump in with um, The Argonauts by Maggie Nelson, mm -hmm. which I recommended when I read it. And I think I recommended it as well. I think you recommended it as yeah. well, but I just, I couldn't stop um, thinking about it. I still think about it almost daily. When I sit down to write, I think about it. When I read other things, I think about it. Um, it's, my love for it is so much to do with its form um, as well as its content, actually. And that's really what I wanted to talk about today rather than the, the rather than the story that she's telling it's more the way that she tells it that mm -hmm. i think is so exciting um because it weaves her own experiences through with fragments of text from other thinkers and um references to writers but all kinds of other things as well and in that way i found it really bent the rules of memoir and it read almost like a thesis at the same time as being an emotional thesis i guess in some ways um and i love the way that her work blurs the lines between the personal the critical the poetical the philosophical all the things um and I guess you know sometimes you read something that reflects how your own mind works and it's like a deeply powerful sense of being seen and heard and understood that's how I felt when I read it and that's actually how I felt when I read Viv's book as well to throw away unopened I res it resonated so profoundly with me in some of her life experiences and the way that she related to those experiences um and I think that's really the power of memoir isn't it it's like those the, the, those moments of resonance is like a bell going off deep inside you where you're just like oh I'm not the only fucking weirdo <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> or whatever it is um so yeah it's a book about boundaries it's a book about the dangers of policing boundaries and you know how I feel about policing <laughs> of boundaries um whether it comes to gen genre or gender or experience or any of those things so yeah I think she's a deeply mind expanding writer and I'm always excited when I remember there's still a lot of her work I haven't read and I can look forward to reading it yeah do you remember when um Sarah Perry came on and recommended Blue. Recommended Blewitts, yeah. And I'd never heard of Maggie Nelson before. No, me before. neither. I She's know. She's really ahead of the curve. She really was yeah. in many ways. And I still haven't read Blewitts, but I have I read have. The Argonauts. It's so great, fantastic. Blewitts is fabulous. I can't wait to read it. Um, so I wanted to recommend one of my favorite memoirs, which is actually a graphic novel. I guess you could call it a graphic memoir, as I'm sure people have. Actually, <laughs> um, it, which is Fun Home by Alison Bechdel. You've spoken about that before, I remember. Oh, no. No, no, I meant, in, like, I remember it being really important yeah. to you. Yeah. Um, no, but it's 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 a really wonderful book, and it's really um, imprinted itself on, on my being. In the, in the way that you talked about Maggie Nelson's work, I, I feel myself returning to it and the ideas within it um, all the time. Mm. And so uh, Bechdel is perhaps most well-known for devising the Bechdel test. Um, she, she had a long-running cartoon or a comic strip, actually, um, Dykes to watch out for, and uh, the the Bechdel test is you know do uh, uh, no cut that out okay, um, 
But Fun Home is the story of her childhood growing up in Pennsylvania, but more specifically her complicated relationship with her father and um, and her own coming out and how those two things are related. Um, it's a really beautifully drawn book. She actually, uh, there are these amazing, she took photos, she modeled all of the characters in the book herself and took photos of them and then drew uh, the strips from the photos. So you can see these pictures of her sort of modeling her dad and then the drawing that came out of that, which is, you know, such an interesting enactment of the kind of complicated family relationship that she's that she's depicting in the book. Um, mm, that's I love a process. that detail. Yeah. Um, and it's just, you know, it's smart, it's funny, it's emotionally resonant, it's thoughtful. Um, and it, w- it was totally innovative for its time, blending comics and memoir, and, and is really recognized as such today. I, I think it still remains a really important work. Um, <laughs> I also wanted to mention it because they made it into a musical, which has been critically acclaimed, won a lot of awards, and I think was the first ever writer-director stuff of all women on Broadway. That's really rad. Yeah. Also, I just love how much of a musical nerd you are. It's I just like love musicals. One of my favorite things about you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, some no, not all musicals. Do you know what musicals no, no, you, I don't you like? You are discerning, babe. Yeah. You are in all things. I am not okay with people just taking the catalog of a musical group and and putting it into a play and like shifting some plot around it and calling it a musical. That's not a musical. That is some serious shade yeah. towards what is it? What are I those think things most called? people feel that way. I yeah. don't even know. Oh, like Mamma Mia. Yeah, Mamma Mia. Yeah, yeah, terrible. Yeah. We Will Rock You was one of the worst experiences of my life. <laughs> Did you see it? Yeah, because oh I went God. with a family I was babysitting for. And if the kids weren't there, I would have walked out. Wow. It was like, I was like, I'd rather be anywhere but listening to this jar jumble of noise and plotless malarkey. <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible. Um, yeah, but uh, it is coming to the Young Vic this summer, I think in June, and I've already bought my tickets. So, oh, if, so good. if if that if you love musicals and Alison Bechdel, I'd recommend also getting tickets. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, we'll be back with our book recommendations from Viv and us. <laughs> <laughs> This is Larry Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt, here with Octavia Bright, my co-host, and also back with Viv Albertine to give some book recommendations at the end of the show. So, Octavia, do you want to start? Always. Um, I'm reading a book called The Big Push, Exposing and Challenging the Persistence of Patriarchy, which thrillingly... Are you just showing off to Viv? <laughs> you are, aren't you? Yeah, I am just showing off to Viv. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, thrillingly, a guy tried to chat me up in a, in a cafe a few days ago. Uh, I was underlining it, and he leant over and said what are you studying? And I looked up and I was like, oh, um, it's this, the big push, you know, challenging the persistence of patriarchy. And he was like, oh, uh, where are you studying? And I was like, well, actually, I have a PhD. So <laughs> it felt great. Um, anyway, it's brilliant. Uh, everyone should read it. Uh, Cynthia Enlow, Enlo, the, the writer, she's a theorist and professor best known for her work on feminist international relations. And the essays are really interrogating why patriarchy is still proving to be so sustainable culturally, institutionally, economically, even though there seems to be this moment of consciousness raising about, you know, wanting to topple it. Yet we still seem to get no further, like when it comes to the actual structures. Um, 
So she talks through ways uh, that we might be able to dismantle it. She has a really interesting perspective on international politics and the various intersections of systems of oppression, facilitated by capitalism, imperialism, all the worst isms, basically. Um, and it's got this really amazing global consciousness. She writes in a completely accessible way. It's not academic speak in any way. Um, it's not highly theoretical. It's actually incredibly practical, which is such a kind of relief to read. Um, and she's quite advanced in her years and in her her process and her understanding of feminism, she's done a lot of reassessing as she's grown and, and continues to write and read, which is also liberating. She talks about a truly feminist consciousness being constantly curious and constantly willing to go back over itself and kind of understand in a deeper way. Um, so yeah, she's a new hero of mine. I'd not really come across her before. Um, but I also want to give a really quick shout out to this fucking brilliant poem I read the other day because I can't stop thinking about it. It's called Slut Boys by a guy called Ben French. Um, and I picked up this magazine called Hey Mister in a coffee shop. And it's an amazing celebration of queer masculinities. So I'm just going to read like a couple of descriptions from it. The sober otters and road-worn chubs, club queens, ballistic, backseat, trucks, backseat truck stop fuckers, dartboard pin-up boys. Um, it's really beautiful. And it made me miss going clubbing, actually, a lot. So, yeah, check it out. Cool. I have a very... Um, different recommendation but first I'm gonna ask Viv for hers okay I'm, I'm very unprepared but um <clears throat> I've started a new book but the last book I finished was Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's uh, Half of a Yellow Sun which won lots and lots of prizes um it, it's a big book but it's, it's kind of an epic going through families and generations and set in Nigeria during the Biafran War and and the thing is I was a teenager during the Biafran War in the 70s and all I knew was the pictures of Biafran children who were you know starving to death and had the swollen bellies and you know you'd always be told by parents you know eat up you know Biafran children are starving and that's all I knew about it and it was just so interesting to read through a novel how the whole how the war started, how it felt to be in the war. You know, we, we follow all the characters before and through and after the Biafran War and um, how the British really manipulated um, the situation and uh, stoked the flames of the war and, and, and divided people there in the Igbo tribe. And it was it, it was just so enlightening but so beautifully written and so, it was you know, it was so readable and so gripping so it is everything I love in a book. You know, for me, the first thing in a book, you know, you have to want to turn the page. It's number one, you know, you could turn, you, you want to turn the page, you get gripped by the story, but at the same time, you're learning about another culture, you know, their food, their ways, you know, things I'd heard about in the 70s and hadn't understood. And it, it's just, I couldn't recommend it enough. I don't think there's any type of person who could not get into that book, really. I loved that book and I love her. I'm, I have read almost everything she's written and I think she's amazing and also I saw her speak recently at um the South Bank Center she did a, a thing with uh Renietta Lodge oh yeah I heard that yeah. and it was just first of all the most amazing literary event I've ever been to like people were gave them a standing ovation when they walked in <laughs> but she's such a rock star yeah. like she's just um yeah, and she speaks the truth. She yeah, doesn't pretend she really to be what does. she's not. Yeah. She, she doesn't pretend to like things she doesn't, you know. Mm. She's so straightforward. Yeah, and is very honest and not afraid to go against the grain, yeah. um, especially about issues of contemporary feminism, things like that. So, mm. yeah, I, I endorse your endorsement. Um, and then my recommendation is on theme today, so the 
larger theme of the show is memoirs. Um, and um, I'm going to represent another memoir, Educated by Tara Westover, um, which just came out a few months ago, actually. Westover grew up in a family, I guess what you might call them separatist Mormons or millennialist Mormons. Basically, her, her father believed that the end of the world was coming or at least uh, civilization was going to collapse. And so they spent most of their time preparing for that. Um, they lived on a farm in Idaho in a sort of junkyard. Um, and she didn't set foot in a classroom until she was 17 years old. She, she taught herself um, and didn't teach herself for a while. And so it's, um, it's sort of the story of her teaching herself and educating herself. And she eventually um, not only went to college, but got a PhD from Cambridge. So it's it's that story. But it's also the story of, you know, much like your memoir, Viv, and I think maybe all memoirs are about this to some extent, is just finding herself as an individual a and learning to both sort of separate herself from her family, but also appreciate what her family had given her um, and, and finding her own way. Um, and it's, I th it's a really, I, again, I think what is great about it is it's honesty. It's, she's, she's not afraid to really forensically examine, um, the way that she grew up and the way that she felt and why people do things and, um, what it really means to get an education and what love is and why it makes things so difficult, um, because love is never uncomplicated. Mm. Uh, and I, I, I just, I really liked it. I read it really quickly. Um, it's a real page turner and, and it's stayed with me since I read it. I've got a copy of it at home waiting for me. So yeah, yeah I'm going to bump it up the list. Sounds really great. All right. Great. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks to our guest, Viv Albertine, Maylee Evans at NTS, and to Eddie Knight for editing and music. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. Thanks to everyone who has rated us on iTunes. It really helps more people find the show and we really love hearing what you think. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram and also get in touch with us on email, litfriction at gmail.com. We love to hear what you think. Say hi. Please say hi. We'll be back in a month. Until then, I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction. Care of Carrie's Hangover. <laughs>